Monday, 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 December 13th. We, uh, I don't want to do that. That was terrible. That was yeah. terrible, right? Here, wait, let me do it. Hey, everybody. Uh, wanted to remind you again about our very first live show. Don't say, don't say wanted to remind you. Okay. Maggie. On Monday, December 13th, me and Ricky are doing our first ever live show at Prospect Park. Uh, oh, fuck. Monday, December 13th, 30 years later, is coming to you live. We're going to be live, baby. We're going to do it live. We're going to be talking about Tony Scott and Shane Black's masterpiece from 1991, The Last Boy Scout. We're going to be at Nighthawk Prospect Park at 9 p.m. for a 35-millimeter presentation. This is a 35-millimeter presentation of a Tony Scott film. So come bask in the soaked streets and smoke billowing up in the background and all of the blues and neons and Bruce Willis being a misogynist. We've got an amazing guest. We've got uh, the author of Tacky, Rex King, and Chris and I are going to hang out afterwards and have drinks forever uh, wants to be bothered by us. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, Monday, December 13th, 9 p.m., The Last Boy Scout in 35 millimeter, and then a little conversation with me, Chris, and Rex King afterwards. But for now... I got sunshine. It's time to talk, my girl. Walking down the street, singing. Later. Dad? I'm embalming my high school teacher. Don't sing. That's my best friend, Veda Saltenfuss. Veda and Thomas. Most of the girls don't appreciate her. I always surround myself with people who I find intellectually stimulating. A lot of the guys are a little afraid of her. Okay, lean forward. <laughs> But she's more fun to be around than anyone I know. This summer, though, things are changing for everyone. Have you ever kissed anyone? No. Her father just found someone. I'm going out with Shelly. I'm very nervous. Since the last time you dated, something happened. The sexual revolution. Good at kissing and dancing. I'm very optimistic. And a grandmother just lost her marbles. It's quarter to three. No wonder Vader's acting so funny. What we're gonna do is send our vibes out into the group. Feel my aura. I don't think I'm allowed to. Welcome to 30 Years Later. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. I am joined, uh, as, of all, as always, by uh, the co-host, Chris Chafin. Chris, say hi. As of always, the co-host, Chris Chafin. Yes, hello, well, everyone. I'm just, just to be clear, Chris, I will never give you a clean introduction. It will never <laughs> it will never not be ambivalent in some way. <laughs> this was one of the times, too, where I was like, okay, shut up and just let Ricky do his magic. Like, you're always getting in the way. And it turned out I was not the problem, so... You're never the problem. I mean, you're always right to get in the way because there's I, I'm, I'm getting in my own way as well. Uh, we're extremely lucky today to be joined by uh, comedian, TV writer, host of Ted uh, Ted's How to Be a Better Human, Chris Duffy. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. 
And Chris, thank you so much to Chris Duffy, not Chris Chafin. Chris Chafin, it's I kind of you your job what I'm going to thank him I for. Knew you weren't, it's good. I knew you weren't talking to me because you said thank you. So yeah. <laughs> that's always well, a good sign. Uh, Chris Duffy, thank you so much for watching 1991's My Girl. Yes, it was a real pleasure to watch. I watched it last night. I rewatched it again. I think we all watched it uh, last night because uh, uh, Chafin and I were texting about it as well. Uh, some brief uh, business about the movie. It was uh, November 27th, 1991. It had a budget of $17 million. It raked in a total of $121 million, which is humongous and sort of unfathomable for a movie like this now. Totally. Uh, it was uh, written by a woman by the name of Loris Elowani, and this was her first script. It was optioned by Brian Grazer, apparently after losing some screenplay competitions. I don't know how he got his hands on it. Yes, apparently and, she was uh, a fellow at the American Film Institute, I guess, at the time when she wrote this. Oh, it was, okay. I have and so was, many questions about her, too. I spent a long time trying to Google more. And, I did uh, too, actually. I found I'm, I found her personal website, and I learned a lot. I think, but there's even very there, little about her, though, right? It's kind of an unbelievable career to me that that Larice. Well, we, I, if you have more facts to go, I have a lot to say <laughs> yeah, about Larice. Yeah. But but I have a lot to say there. When whenever you're done with the facts, well, let, yeah, well, let's get to that in just a second. It stars Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis, Macaulay Culkin, Anna Klumski, who uh, is just unbelievable in this movie. Griffin Dunn, who delivers a very strange performance. In my <laughs> very opinion, weird. Which we'll get into. Very, very strange weird. character, uh, a very strange performance. Yeah. I, see, I feel like it's a very uh, like normal character for a movie like this, but his performance is strange. Be, we'll we'll talk about that in a, in a in a little while. And it was directed by Howard Howard Zeef, who's kind of like an old school. Um, director that I think just sort of like your standard director for hire in the seventies and eighties. But what he did do that people know of is private Benjamin and the dream team, uh, the dream team, this movie that for whatever reason was like my favorite movie when I was like nine. And it's like, you know, Michael Keaton and a group of, uh, it's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but like, what if the, what if the patients at the asylum broke out and ran around the city for a little <laughs> while? Like that's, that's the dream team. Um, but yeah, he directed, uh, this and my girl two and my girl after my girl two, he retired and, um, he died of Parkinson's disease. Uh, not, not too long after. It's interesting but, uh, because he was like an advertising guy. And if I'm doing the math correctly, he was in his like mid to late forties when he made his first movie, I guess he had done just been worked in advertising before that. It really feels like a lot of people involved in this between the screenwriter and the director, like made this, they made the sequel and then it was it. They just yes. were done yes. forever, you know, in a kind of baffling way for a movie that was so financially successful and is such a classic. It won best kiss at the MTV movie awards. <laughs> One of the most really? prestigious of all movie awards. <laughs> yes. I just mean, it's like, it was that part of the zeitgeist, you know, totally. that like children Did... were voting for it for awards. Upon, upon winning, did Anna Klumski and Macaulay Culkin like get on stage and kiss in front of an audience that cheered them on? Or did they do it expecting to be cheered on and the audience was like, we don't, don't, we don't like this. Don't, don't do that. I did read a little bit about the moment and it was Anna said, supposedly said something like, gee, my first kiss and I win an award. Oh, that's adorable. It's very, very cute. cute. It's very cute. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess I guess very briefly for those who haven't seen it, I don't know why you would listen to a podcast about a movie you haven't seen. <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> you have I, have, I have done it. I have done it. Eager for it to be spoiled in its entirety right now. 
Uh, My Girl takes place in 1972 in Pennsylvania. It's about an adorable little girl who lives with her single father who's a mortician and they run a funeral home. And it's really about a little girl learning about death. And it's a surprisingly mature sentimental movie that I just don't think you would ever see uh, you know, nowadays, these days, if you will. I mean, I guess we could kind of start there. Because I was most taken by that while I was watching this movie that I just and I went looking around Netflix afterwards to look for some kind of contemporary version of this movie where like an adolescent child is in an adult world, but it's still a family, a movie that a family could watch. And all I could find were like YA movies on Netflix, like, you know, teenagers who were like dealing with some sort of traumatic past thing that's caught them in a time loop but they're in love at the same time i don't know and then everything else was just like a children's movie like a children's children's movie you know that you would just sort of a parent wouldn't want to watch i couldn't really think of any kind of um uh, of any any film that i could compare this to that's come out in the last like 20 years that's just uh you could imagine a, a a parent enjoying it just as much as their child does well, it definitely seemed to me watching it like this is one of the weirdest movies. It has so <laughs> many weird things that I think I didn't remember in my mental you know, catalog of what this movie was. And then rewatching it, it is so full of bizarre stuff like the they are. It takes place in a mortician's. Uh, there's this whole thing of like she constantly is going to the doctor because she thinks she's going to die. There's so many bizarre pieces of this. Yes, this and, movie is, just to interrupt really quick, it's set in the kind of fictional small town where a child can ride their bike to their doctor's office and be seen immediately, you know? <laughs> yeah, and also the nurse at one point is like, why don't you use this big plastic syringe as a water gun? <laughs> right. Just hands it to them. And they're like, yeah, can we take two? And she's like, of course. And now it's like, if you go into a doctor's office and they unwrap one of those things, that's $40,000. Oh, oh no doubt. for sure. And yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Right. And even in the world of this movie, when Macaulay Culkin says, like, oh, can I get two? I I expected some kind of gentle, like, rebuke. But the way that the nurse just goes, oh, okay, sure. I was like, <laughs> yeah. this is amazing. I definitely I, feel like you couldn't find that. Like, there's not a parallel movie today because it would be all about the weird parts of it, right? Like, it would be, it, they wouldn't be able to have so many weird things happening in one movie, I think. Well, well I don't think you would even have her living in a funeral home without it then becoming a ghost story or absolutely. a horror movie, right? right, right Whereas, right. again, like this movie takes place in a funeral home and then it becomes about a child learning about death. And that totally. becomes the, the basic theme of the of the film, whereas that would just become the text. Because as, as we talk about in this podcast all the time, there's no subtext in movies anymore. It's mm-hmm. all text. Like if this movie was set now, if this movie was made now, it would be like the second scene would be a dead person with a magic amulet being brought into the <laughs> into the funeral home, and then there's a people are trying to get the amulet, and you know the bodies come back to life, all this stuff, right? But instead, there's, this is just very generally an emotional metaphor background. Which there's is, also it's also it's a. Uh, there's definitely right, another version of this movie that is just about my uh, my stepmom lives in an RV. Yes, yes, 100%. Yes. And a very nice RV, by the way, which apparently the production actually purchased. It's like a kind of cool, you know, retro RV from the 60s, I think. I hate to jump so far ahead, but the only thing that I really remember from last night about the RV is that when her ex-husband shows up to get it, to take it from her and her and Jamie Lee Curtis and Dan Aykroyd have started dating at this point. 
And Dan Aykroyd stands up. He punches the ex-husband in the stomach and says, if you ever come back to this house, I'm going to bury you in the front yard. Cut to evening. And they're, <laughs> yes. and they're, and they're saying... And they're saying goodbye to them as if the guys hung out for the rest of the day. Yes. And it's a friendly goodbye. It's definitely a friendly goodbye. Yes. So he punched this guy in the gut and then the guys were like, can we get a burger? Like (laughs) (laughs) they were like, Hey, look, you got a point. I was acting like a real jerk. I'm sorry. Uh, If you'd have us, we'd love to join your family for this barbecue. But they didn't even like add a line where it's like, you know, Dan Aykroyd or Jamie Lee Curtis was kind of said something along the lines of like, well, you know, it seems like they calmed down. And he's like, uh, you know, it seems like everything's going to be okay. They just said goodbye to them and went to the next scene. <laughs> so I, bizarre. I also love a, a person being presented as a villain in a movie. Uh, and even in the movie's own explanation of it, he's not a villain. Where he's like, hey, in the divorce agreement, we agreed I'd get half of this. And then uh, Dan Aykroyd looks at Jamie Lee Curtis and is like, is that true? And she's like, it's true. And then he punches him in the stomach. <laughs> yeah. And the guy's like, I'm a villain because I wanted what I'm legally supposed to get. Like she stole a car basically. Yeah. And he's, and he's not, he's, he doesn't even want it back permanently. He just wants it back for a bit. You know, we're also never and, told that he's like a bad husband, just that they don't love each other anymore. Are we? I, I think there was no. never a problem, but he's presented as sleazy, he's right? Like, I mean, wearing, he's, he bellows bell bottom jeans. So we and know he has, a, he's he, has a hen, he has a henchman. Yes. So like his brother, brother who's dressed his like someone Phil. from the warriors. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not on his side. I think Jamie Lee Curtis should have had her own RV. It, should, it was hers, clearly. But it's uh, it's disturbing to me that that was uh, there was no backstory other than just he pulls out the wrong piece of paper. He's like, oh, that's my lease. And they're like, you get a punch in the stomach then, Bubby. Very weird. I mean, one of the topics I would like to talk about in general in this movie, and just to be upfront, like I had actually never seen this movie before. Oh, um, I know that's very strange. I hadn't. Yeah, there's a couple. I have a few weird blind spots from this period. So what was your in your like understanding of it as a cultural touchstone? Was yes. it like child dies from bee stings? Was that? what Yeah, you the, my general understanding of it as a as a kid at the time was like sad movie where Macaulay Culkin dies mm. and a bunch of serious stuff happens. So I didn't particularly want to watch it. You know, but did you know, but did you know they went that hard on Macaulay Culkin dying? Did I know it was they go so fucking raw. hard on it? Yeah, yeah, they really they go so fucking hard. I actually read like, some interview where he claimed that there were real bees around him. Like, in that last scene it really doesn't look like that oh it looks so fake it, it looks, looks so, so fake in, it's the in an incredibly realistic movie that that scene is the fakest thing i've ever seen and it's one of those scenes that's in slow motion just to like kind of cover up that it's fake but it has the opposite effect well it's also funny because it's slow motion but not of macaulay culkin it's slow motion of bees swarming his glasses and it's like <laughs> okay well, why did that have to be slow-mo I'm I'm I gotta be honest with you I'm feeling pretty I'm feeling like you guys are kind of heartless because I couldn't even focus on the fact that it looked fake through I couldn't see that through all the tears in my eyes oh yeah I was too broken up it really works I certainly was was crying there's no yeah well that is one thing I don't want to nitpick this movie because right as somebody who just saw it for the first time like I do think it is good I think it is a good movie and it's such as it's doing so many things that are like objectively cliched and, and I don't know if they were less cliched 30 years ago but it's like mostly pulling them off and it is very sad and 
maybe it's because my beautiful wife was there with me and she was crying throughout a lot of the movie and I have a, my own daughter. And so I'm connecting with that level of the movie, but yeah, I mean, it made me emotional as an adult, like seeing it for the first time. So like not to take, like, it's fun to like, like, yo, I want to rag on this movie too, bro. But I'm just saying it actually does no, I really love work. Right? I love it. I think it really held up in a way that I was very surprised by. I thought it held up. My same. wife said the same thing. So she was, was like, I. she was worried it wasn't going to hold up for her, but it did. She felt like it held always, up really well. I always assumed it didn't hold up and that I would watch it and it would be an over, a, a stupid, sentimental kids movie. But I was really engaged and, and really enjoyed it. And I started noticing things about it. I was like, oh, this is actually a very well-told story. Like People sat down with the script and were like, how can we engage in some foreshadowing? How can mm. we make sure that these scenes apply this and, mean, and have these different meanings and that the theme comes out at different times? I was really surprised by that because, again, I just don't think you see that at all with YA or kids movies any anymore at all <laughs> well i think it's I, all I, plot like you were saying right like it's all yeah plot. it's all plot and this is a hangout movie there's no there's very little plot in this movie it's just, it's it's technically a hangout movie it's her <laughs> summer and she's just chilling with her friend and there's a new woman in town and, and that's about it and these are the things that happen during the summer right yeah i mean it, to what you were saying before kids do things that are um wrong but not disastrously wrong do you know what i mean like it's a movie where kids make mistakes in a way that it feels very real like even though someone does die in the movie like if i totally agree with you it's like not there aren't huge stakes to everything sometimes they do something and then they just go like whoa <laughs> you know yeah, not... well I, i'm just thinking specifically of like like she's in love with her teacher and like that's right. not presented as inherently this dangerous thing right like but it's also not like she's taken advantage of but like it, it's very real to be like a, a kid who has a crush that's unrealistic and then all of those like i just felt like it was it, it took some aspects of childhood seriously in a way that I feel like is actually really quite rare. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah, Ricky, did you want to talk about this Griffin Dunn performance a little bit? So Griffin Dunn is playing the teacher oh. that she's in, in love with. <laughs> and just to well, anticipate maybe what you're going to say, though, I think the weird thing about the way they play it is like, it seems like he might be interested in her. <laughs> yes. Yes. He like, there's a moment where she is crying cause she's just left the funeral and she shows up at Griffin Dunn's doorstep and she's like, tells finally confesses to him that she loves him. And his fiance like steps out into the doorway. And for some reason, Griffin Dunn puts his head down and is like, that's my fiance. <laughs> yeah, that is. Very and you're like, weird. why that are is. you acting so guilty? Like, this is a child. Like, <laughs> you're not guilty for having a fiance. Like, you're you are giving the wrong vibe to this kid right like, now. This is extreme. Like, it wasn't inappropriate until this. And now like, I'm yeah. like, great point. I, you know, I did not clock that in the moment. And now that I'm thinking about it, that is extremely strange. It's like it's when you're like, strange. it's like when the woman you flirt with at work, you're like, oh, so my girlfriend. And they're like, oh, your girlfriend. Yeah, he like, does the casual girlfriend droppage, but with a child. Right. But he does, it's not even casual. He puts his head down like he's guilty of something. Like, <laughs> he, to be, like this is going to sound terrible, but he puts his head down like he's been having an affair with Veda yes, the like whole he, summer. Yes. And now, now his wife has shown up and, he, and he's kind of with his body language being like, I'm really sorry we can't do this anymore. He, he's like, I didn't want you to see this. I didn't want you to find out this way. But yeah. like, yeah, that's, that's my fiance. <laughs> like, right, that is like, the what he's doing i'm nine (laughs) i do feel compelled to defend this for a little bit which is like i interpreted it as he's just very emotionally in tune with this person that he that's this kid that he has a a real like relationship with and mentors and he knows that she's hurting and he's like oh this is gonna make it so like you're hurt even more like he just know i thought it was like well this is a moment where it's not a private moment anymore 
But like, I, I, I very I, much see I, the other way around. I I totally agree with you, and I think that's what he was going for. Yeah. I think that it unfortunately it just reads a little too much one way, and mm. I think he could like they could have dialed it back or done. I mean, whatever. It's very much nitpicking at this point, but it's just a weird moment where it's like, oh, <laughs> it is. Why are you? <laughs> well, it definitely is a movie that has so many weird moments that to me the collection of weirdness excuses some of the uh like if it was a movie where they only had one weird moment you'd be like uh oh <laughs> yeah, but like right. that is also right after we are at the truly the the tearjerker of all tearjerker oh moments which is the funeral harrowing, harrowing. And, terrible and here's another nitpicky a moment child's corpse is in this scene <laughs> yes and uh it, it, a nitpicky moment for me there is uh <laughs> we see we see that they the costume people put Jamie Lee Curtis into a dress that is like very tasteful and black, like funeral dress from I have I have and, thoughts and about mini, Jamie Lee Curtis skirt wardrobe down. I was like, what? That seems like not her character's choice to me. Well, I I have thoughts about her wardrobe throughout the throughout the entirety of the movie, which is that she shows up looking one way, which is single woman, post sexual revolution kind like dress, kind of sexy, and as she works her way. Uh, as she becomes more acquainted with the family and becomes more a part of the family and starts dating Dan Aykroyd, she starts dressing more conservatively and changes her hair and puts it back in kind of like a, a, a beehive kind of bun a little bit. And so there is like a, uh, there is kind of like a conservative element that they're playing with in terms of who she ends up becoming while living in this nuclear family. Well, the- and then at the same, in the same respects, Anna Klumsky, the only time you see her wearing a dress is the last scene of yes. the movie. Yeah, and yeah. she's, it's grown up into a woman, right? Yes. And right. to 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 add on to that, one of the few clear uh, sour notes of this thing, because almost everything hit for me in a way where I was really deeply moved. One of the only clear sour notes for me, because I was like, wait, is that a joke or not? Is the end of the movie, one of the last lines is like, everything's good. Nixon's running. Nixon's nominated for president again. Like, Why what? is that in the movie? Yes. Why is there an endorsement of Nixon as like the second to last line for no reason? And it's, well, it's not was, set up at all that Dan Aykroyd is a Republican and maybe she's just repeating something he would have said. It's not a callback to anything. No, it's just out of nowhere. They're like, and by the way, vote Nixon. Thanks for watching, well, my girl. At the beginning of the movie, when she lets those little kids into the house to show them a ghost who ends up just being her grandmother, yeah. uh, who has the most adorable form of dementia you could possibly have. Yes. Um, he, he, one of the kids is wearing a Nixon, uh, a Nixon for president button on his, on his oh, jacket. I didn't even as notice. Well. There is also yeah. a Nixon, like an Agnew poster in the movie uh, yes. at some point. Um, well, here's what I'll say. I mean, I don't know if we want to talk about it now, but we might as well. But the woman who wrote the script, Larice Elawani, yeah. she is a Christian. Like her, she wrote a series of competing Harry Potter books in the 2010s hmm. um, called, oh my God, what are they? Um, oh God, 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 hold on. Oh yeah, the Ether series. And it's about kids who, instead of becoming wizards, find out they are guardian angels. And they have to go, they learn about how to be angels and they go to angel Hogwarts and stuff. So I do think there is a, like the evolution of Jamie Lee Curtis's character that you're talking about from like liberated woman slash like hussy to like conservative housewife. I mean, that is maybe not an accident. Like, I think that is the worldview of this writer. Which is fine, which to be perfectly honest, is that's fine by me. And I appreciate it even more that it is actually in the movie and that there's detail 
that they pay attention enough to the detail. Like no one really talks about her wardrobe as it changes, but you can see it happening. And that's just like, in my mind, maybe I don't watch a lot of kids movies or adult movies for adolescents, but like a minor detail that I don't think you would see anymore. I don't think anyone would pay attention. So even if it's a conservative point of view, I'm fine with that. I'm just happy to have more details and texture in a movie. A point of view and some thought, right? It is interesting because to think about whether the movie is, is feminist or not is an interesting question, right? Because on the one hand, right, there's this extremely strong, young woman who's the character who's the who drives the whole movie right and it, she has like a very much like a, a scout from uh you know yeah, to um, kill a mockingbird, mockingbird yeah. feeling she has that kind of feeling but then there is also this kind of question of like what is the story that we're then told about adult women where it's like the only adult women are their purpose is to be uh how they're like accessories to men and they are all getting married we don't see an unmarried woman who isn't on the road to getting married right I mean, yeah uh, yeah, it is interesting. interesting. Yeah, because they obviously in, in, it's like, you know, they have the talk about your period and they talk about sex off screen. But at least we kind of know that it has happened in a well, way. The sexual that, revolution is brought up, right? Dan yeah. Aykroyd's brother. Yes, yes. And played a by, uh, player, right? Phil Mazur, who I, I think his name is Phil Mazur, an actor that I love. Um but yeah, he has that whole thing where he's telling Dan Aykroyd, you know, like, don't worry about it. You're going to get laid anyway. It's the sexual revolution. You don't have to do anything. You do whatever the fuck you want, man. You don't yeah. got to pay for a dinner. You don't got to open the door. Nothing. <laughs> and then Dan Aykroyd has the uh, incredibly charming dateline of as they're having a romantic dance in the RV. He says, bra? Question mark. And she oh says, God. yes. <laughs> as though she understands what he means by that. How could she possibly know what he means when he just says broad? Oh Can we also say no one plays horny and befuddled as well oh as Dan Aykroyd? Truly, like when truly, truly. he, when he, when Jamie Lee Curtis first walks in and he's like, he would have it. It's essentially the same look. He does in Ghostbusters when he's getting a blow yeah. job. Like yes, it's for sure. Making the same face. Well, it's like, I, it's, Sarah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it's I, I, it's interesting to to see where this came in Dan Aykroyd's career because he, uh, you know, he almost didn't do this because he was editing his first di- directorial movie, which was a complete <laughs> bomb. And the fact that oh, he yeah. ended up being able to do this kind of saved his career because this was this big hit that was unexpected. Chris, have you seen that complete bomb? I have not. Uh, is that no. no nothing but trouble? We did it on the show. Yeah. We did it on the show. It's insane. Um, it is insane. It's one of the craziest things that's ever been made. It, is it not, one of the not in a good way? One <laughs> of the remarkable things about it is how much money it cost and how bad it looks. Mm. They like uh, built a roller coaster and they, they tried to build it into the movie and it's a disaster. <laughs> yeah. Well, interestingly, he went straight from the roller coaster movie to a movie that has an extremely long and dramatic bumper cars scene. Like oh a, an emotionally intense bumper cars, which I don't think I've seen in another movie. Well, I was thinking- I had I had questions about that scene and my questions were even if someone was going after you in bumper cars, would you be able to notice? No, I certainly <laughs> had that same question. Well, no, what I think is more true is like, if you're going after after somebody, it's hard to run into them over and over again because yes, you have to go yes. all the way away from them and come back, which is like, imp- you, the bumper car session only lasts for like three minutes. So it's like pretty hard to do that. It's Jamie also- Lee Curtis's character is abnormally scared of Absolutely, the bumper cars yes. as well. But, uh, yeah. To be fair, Anna Chlumsky is fucking wailing on her in those bumper cars. Yeah. It looks real. Like she looks like she's legitimately getting whiplash from it 
It's just funny because Jamie Lee Curtis, as they go into the bumper cars, is like, I'm going to get you. And then as soon as she starts getting God <laughs> in him, she's like, what's happening? And there's pure terror in her eyes. He's like, bumper cars should be illegal. This is not cool. <laughs> Did you guys notice the the foreshadowing at the beginning? And I only noticed it because because I had seen this movie before. But uh, when Jamie Lee Curtis's character uh, comes in for the first time and meets Dan Aykroyd, somebody else comes in the room and asks uh, Dan Aykroyd where he wants him to put the little casket. Yeah. And she yeah. said, are the little caskets for children? And he's like, no, they're for smaller people. Yeah. But I had I was like, oh, that's pretty. That's a nice touch. I didn't realize that this movie cared enough. To, as an adult, I didn't realize this movie cared enough to apply something like that at the beginning of its story. That's good. I I, I know we we had just started talking about Larice, but it is really interesting to me that like there are so many moments like that. It's such a weird and specific script. It's it is just unbelievable to me that kind of the entirety of her IMDb page is five credits, and it's My Girl, it's My so Girl weird. Two, the Brady Bunch movie, the Amazing Panda Adventure, and then a video called Gladiformers Robos Gladiadoros. <laughs> My girl too. It looks like she didn't even write. It's yeah, it's just, just the characters. Just like, yeah, credit for the characters. Yeah, I, right. certainly oh, on her credit. on her website, she also claims to have done uncredited work on um, the Bewitched and Anastasia movies. Mm. There's certainly a story there. I mean, there's there is some sort of biopic or, or at least uh, you know a, a profile guys, in a magazine that's that's waiting to be written well, about her. Do you I guys think I, she got she got canceled from Hollywood for being Christian? <laughs> that's probably it. that's probably it. She couldn't get any jobs because of her strong conservative values. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it, it's actually kind of weird because I think we ran into another situation where this this happened, which was Ricky. What was the name of that Richard Dreyfus movie that we did? Oh, Once Around. That was a great Once movie. Around. So this was a woman. This woman. So she wrote this movie called Once Around. It starred Richard Dreyfus, and it was like her very first script, just like this. She was like a kid, and somehow it got optioned and turned into a movie. And somehow through this process, she also got connected with Steven Spielberg, and she wrote the script for Hook. Whoa! But then she like basically never did anything ever again, mm. which is so weird. I mean, you just have to imagine like you know, projects that seemed like they were going somewhere and didn't go somewhere and like be trying to be a woman in the Hollywood in, in the 1990s. That's what I kind of assumed you know? it was. I, I assumed that this was like the challenges of and sexism of the Hollywood industry. Right. But, well, yeah. I mean, even, even the woman who wrote uh, Thelma and Louise has like her, her IMDb credits are really strange as well. And it looks like it's impossible for, for it. Like you said, it looks like it's impossible for a woman to really like, have the same kind of career that men have when it comes to screenwriting or directing. Like at, even at having this kind of fantastic success in the early 1990s, it was like, they just went away after that. Okay. Well, here's an interesting question. I think just as like, uh, obviously no one has this kind of control, but if you could write one movie that's regarded as kind of like a perfect classic beloved movie and then have that be the entirety of your career, would you rather have that? Or would you rather have a long career with kind of nothing that is better than a six out of 10? Long career with nothing that's better than a six out of ten. And not for money, but because it's fun to sit around and come up with ideas and write stuff. And like at the end of the day, by the time it comes out, if you're just a writer, you have very little to do with it at the end. So you're on to the next project if possible. You know, that's that sounds more fun than than being depressed all the time that you can't write something as good as the well, thing that you see, wrote yeah, before. That's, like, that's, that sounds fucking miserable. That's exactly what I was gonna say, is like I wish I would 
believed that I had the inner peace to accept that I had made one classic that people love. But it, it, but it, no, I would be like tortured all the time that I knew I was capable of doing something good and I was unable to duplicate the success. Like I would fucking lose my mind. Those are the kind of people that like die of drug overdoses. Like, you know, it's very hard on you emotionally, I think. Yeah, I think I think the only way I could do it that way is if you do that and then you just leave the industry, you go do something completely different, yeah. right? You're, you're like, like oh, become now. a veterinarian or something. Yeah, now I'm like, uh, you're you're the uh, the dermatologist, and someone's like, hey, your name is kind of familiar. Is it? Aren't you the woman who wrote My Girl too? And you're like, oh, I am. Now let's get that skin exam started. <laughs> For a well, while, that true. was that woman who played Winnie Cooper, right? Like she was like an astrophysicist or something, but then she like, and also Mayim Bial, like they both had like gone on to careers in academia, yes. but then they both quit and just came back to being celebrities. Well, I heard one, one person who did something like that, even though it wasn't one movie, it was many movies was, um, Nikki St. John, who was Abel Ferrara's writer for like 20, 15 years. And, uh, they, he just didn't want to do it anymore. And he walked away from it, like at the height of their fame and and like the the height like how much money that they were making he was just like nope and now he like lives in the bronx and works with uh disabled kids and that's what he's been doing for the last like 25 years that's the he smartest like, person out. of all of us that is yes, the wisest definitely. of all of them and most emotionally yeah. healthy person i've ever heard of in my life absolutely um can we talk about the wardrobes in this <laughs> yes, movie please. because i was like obsessed with how cool the kids wardrobes looked like every kid in this movie to me looked like someone that I would see in Brooklyn walking around <laughs> with like the cons and this kind of like light color jeans and like flannel and, and flannels. Everyone, they just looked really cool. I wanted all of their fits. <laughs> <laughs> Macaulay Culkin has those really round brass glasses that are like very hot right now. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, isn't that uh, 30 years is about the time that it takes for things to come back into style, right? Isn't that the, isn't that the number? Yeah. Well, this would be 50 years, though, because this oh, movie yes, takes place thing. in 72. There you go. Yeah. Which which is interesting because this movie came out uh, in a shorter. How, how, how do people say this all the time? But like the movie was this movie takes place only 20 years uh, before it was made, whereas we're talking about it 30 years after it was made, which I think yeah. is kind of weird because when in 1991, when I was seven years old, the 70s to me seemed like they were 100 years ago. Absolutely, yes. Like if this movie were made today, it would be set in 2003 oh, and it would wow. be called like all the small things and they would like <laughs> go to see Harry Potter 2, you know? Like, well, oh. it's just like weird to think about like watching this with my parents they like they they were sitting there being like, oh yeah, that was like yesterday for me. Thomas right? J, like, grab they, your Digimon. Yeah, yeah, right. Do you want to go see American Pie two? Sneak out of your house. We have to go play with our Digimon in the back of the American Pie two movie theater. Can you believe nine eleven already happened a long time ago at this point? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> When's your dad coming back from Iraq? Yes, yes, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Oh yeah, that's a can, that's another small. Well, you know, you said you wanted to talk about the outfits, and we really haven't talked about them at all. Yeah, so sorry I do that. want to do sure, that, but fine. I I, I want to put a pin in something else that I want to talk about, which is: Do we believe that the uncle can really pick up radio transmissions from the plate <laughs> in his head? Because it's presented as in a way that made me think it wasn't a joke. If I agree that I I heard that line, and this movie, like I said, it does have a lot of cliches in it, and mostly they work. But th this one. Which is one of the plot lines on Pete and Pete, by the way. That Absolutely. the mom can get radio on her head. They do say it like like it is true. 
And I, I, I also found myself wondering, like, I don't know, I guess maybe that must have happened once if people talk about it all the time, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, you know. <laughs> But it also just seems like a dumb, cliched joke. So, like, how could it possibly be true? You know. Uh, when does he I'll... say that? I actually don't. I actually don't remember that. Oh scene. no, it's actually in voiceover. Anna Chomsky says yeah, it when they're um, like when... sitting oh, on okay. the swing after the barbecue. Yeah, she's just okay. describing her family, and she's like, "Oh, he came. He went to Korea, and he came back, and he had a plate in his head, and we picked up radio on it." The voiceover in this movie is 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 dropped in at very strange times. Absolutely, like sometimes. Times. Sometimes it works, and then all of a sudden, there's just like a weird one-liner that I, I I had to remind myself that it was voiceover and not somebody talking off camera. It, right? it begins it, with like straight to camera, her talking voiceover straight to camera, and then like goes into the world of the movie, which is a very bold choice. Well, which it, I will say, I went when I went back looking for other movies that could potentially be like this, and I was looking for like some kind of contemporary version. They all have. All the teen girl movies have teen girl voiceover, but the voiceover is the most grating thing you've ever heard in your life. It's it's that kind of voiceover that's like, um, um, I don't think I was gonna do that with my dad. I was a little bit better than that. Like all this like really smarmy, sarcastic voiceover versus this, which is like innocent and sweet and kind of confused. Well, I do think the closest thing in tone to this that I can imagine that exists right now is uh, Never Have I Ever, the the Netflix series, which has voiceover and also has the like uh, deceased parent. It has the like, you know, the strong but prob like troublesome uh, teen girl. So there's yeah. like some overlap there. It's not the yeah. same at all, but, but you're totally some. right. It's like a TV shows now, I guess, and not yeah. movies like sex education or like the end of the fucking world. Like, are these what, what this is now? Yes. Well, but, and I hate to, bela I hate to belabor this. It's like the only thing I want to talk about. So I will just keep coming back to it over and over again. <laughs> I, I love that. I love the dead. But like, <laughs> But like I even in watching those shows, there is a commitment to punchlines mm. that like my, my girl doesn't necessarily have. Like as cliche and as broad as my girl is, there is a subtlety to it that I don't think that I can't that I couldn't see in any of the shows that and I've seen sex education and all those things, but in those thing in those movies, they all feel like the camera dollies in or whip pans really fast at the joke, or someone has to tell you exactly what's happening. Yeah. And then to top it off, my girl looks really good like it's shot on 35 millimeter film the colors are beautiful yet it's also kind of subtle and how it's shot and everything that i was looking at now looks terrible it all looks like whether it was shot on an iphone or not it like sex education to me just doesn't look as good as 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 my girl does and there's lots of exteriors which i thought was really unusual for a movie like these days you wouldn't see them like in a real neighborhood for yeah. as much of the movie as they are you know i mean if you want to talk about how movies were made in 1991 there's a fact from this movie that the willow tree that they sit under wasn't actually a willow tree or a weeping willow tree and what they did was because they liked where this particular tree was for the shot props went in or set design went in and put all weeping willow branches. They made branches oh for this particular wow. tree to look like a weeping willow. This movie cost $16 million in 1991. That's about $33 million. Now that's like the same price that like the master costs, right? Like that went into making my girl. Yeah. It's also like a full half of that budget was just making this one tree into a weeping willow. <laughs> Yes. Right. 
Yeah, I heard a thing too, just speaking of like the budget, like there's this great interview with Jamie Lee Curtis that Vanity Fair did where she's talking about all her movies. And she tells this really weird story about this movie. Like, I guess the last scene that they shot was the scene where Macaulay and Anna jump into the lake where they're like escaping the bees and they jump into the lake. So this is the last scene that they shot. And um, she tells this whole kind of meandering thing about how there was a swear jar and you're not supposed to swear. And the swear jar was very serious. And then she's like, and then this last scene, okay, they've got like helicopters, scuba divers, ambulances, uh, stuntmen everywhere. There's 15 cameras, you know, and the water is only three feet deep. So they film the scene, they jump in the water. And then I picked up both the swear jars and I walked out and I said, Macaulay, Anna, you wrap the movie, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> and I gave them the two swear jars. I'm like, what is this fucking story? <laughs> what is happening with you? What a weirdo. She walked over to two children and said, go fuck yourselves. And then gave them $500 each, which she acted like was a huge amount of money as if these were not the two stars of this movie. <laughs> it's funny you to be like, oh, we made more than you on this movie, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, like Macaulay Culkin is the star of Home Alone at this point. Like he yeah. is much hotter than Jamie Lee Curtis. Like, Although this like is some weird Jeffrey Tambor behave- behavior. This was definitely a a reminder of the incredible range that Jamie Lee Curtis has. Like I watched this and was like, wow, she, what an incredible uh, oeuvre the Jamie Lee Curtis oeuvre is that that includes this. This is just three years before she makes true lies. And yet she seems like a completely different person at a completely different stage of her life. Totally. And she's great in this. She's amazing in it. Yeah. And she's, she's playing a role that's like, yeah, she's a divorced not a divorced mother, just a divorced woman who's like looking for her second chapter, you know? Yep. It's fantastic. Yeah. She, and she's, you know, a Sarah, it reminded me a lot of a movie that is kind of similar to this in some ways, um, which is Cher's performance in mermaids, right? She's like kind of that kind of a figure. I mean, even though Cher in that movie, obviously like is textually the mother, like the biological mother, but this kind of like knowing nostalgic, gruff but ultimately better than anybody you could ask for kind of mother figure it it did remind me of 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 that i don't know if you guys have seen that movie yeah i i definitely can see that for sure they also have that kind of like energy you know that that like ah i'm fancy and i say anything but i'm also fun and i am emotionally attuned energy yeah and like men are throwing themselves at me but uh, you know whatever were men throwing themselves at Jamie Lee Curtis? I, my major question for the whole movie was, is Dan Aykroyd the only man in town? <laughs> <laughs> I did have, I think there is an argument you could make. And I think that it is textually supported by the movie that Jamie Lee is like an insane gold digger because when, and I, of course I like her character and I don't really mean this, but like there's when she first walks into that, the funeral parlor, they show her looking around at how nice the house is. And then they show her going kind of like, huh? And then it's like two scenes later that she's flirting with Dan Aykroyd. (laughs) And I was like, is she just doing this for the house? And they've already established that she lives in her car. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, well, is, is, is that what we're supposed to believe about her or well, they do give her later on. They give her the like, uh, there were a couple of lines in the movie. Again, I love the script, but there are a couple of lines that had like the strong feel of uh, I will answer this studio executive's note by putting this exact line in. And one of them is Jamie Lee being like, when I first came into this house, I didn't want to play with dead bodies and put makeup on them. But then I oh, thought, yes. here's a family. I could join this family. So that's why I did the makeup. <laughs> That is the worst scene in the movie, I think. Yeah, and I it's agree. unfortunate because it's at like a really pivotal point. But and uh, but that is that is 
probably the worst scene in the movie. And I blamed Jamie Lee Curtis when I was watching it last night, but just hearing you say those lines, and I think I knew in my heart that it was the writing, (laughs) but hearing you say those lines out loud, those lines are so terrible. Okay, well, if I was going to give my top... So again, love. I really think that this is a well-written movie, but if I was going to give my top three worst lines in this movie, certainly one is, and everything ends well because Nixon is renominated. But then two (laughs) would be that, and then three would be the the one line direct to voiceover where after in the writing class, she's told, say what's really in your heart they say this with no other explanation they go say what's really in my heart like i'm the one who killed my mother and then they just cut to a new scene and just keep moving on yeah that is one of those moments where i went i went what yeah who said that why why was that that? only line in voice over there could please help us somehow and right, he's like, do something from your heart. Because I think I killed my mother. I don't even know if they've a hundred percent established her mother is dead at that point. <laughs> She's just not around, you know. It's um, definitely a strange. It's definitely a weird moment that I again attributed to someone being like, "Oh well, what is the answer for her there? Tell us." And then they put that in the script. I'm just feeling like I'm not 100% understanding why she wants to be in this situation. She's a hot girl. She's a makeup artist. Like, why? Yeah. You know, I, I'm not really getting it. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, fine, fine, fine. Um, Do you want to move on? And, do you want to do the questions, Ricky? Yeah, sure. Let's do the questions. Uh, so at the end of the podcast, which is really not the end of the podcast, it's really the midway point we're realizing. <laughs> like two-thirds, maybe. You know. Yeah, like two-thirds. We ask uh, three questions, and the first one is, very simple. It's just what was your favorite part of the movie? So, uh, Chris Duffy, not Chris Chafin, uh, what was your favorite part of the movie? I, I mean, my favorite part of the movie is Anna Chomsky. She's just so, so, so good, good in this. So good. Uh, incredible acting, incredible character. Uh, yeah. And then I, I think my favorite like moment with her is I love right up front when she scams the kids into paying her to see a dead body that's not actually a dead body. That's incredible. <laughs> It's great. And then she makes a whole, like, she has a whole bit about it where yep. it's like the, the dead body has escaped and then she leads them in to see her grandma. Like, yeah, it's very well done. Uh, Chris? Yeah. Chafin? I mean, I also have to say she is my favorite part of the movie, but for a different reason, which is that, again, not to, you know, brag, but I am a father. You know, it's very important work and I'm very proud of, you know, myself. And, um, so I, you know, I have a two-year-old, right? There is something about the way that Anna Chomsky is performing in this movie. That's like, it's so natural, like the way that she is like kind of limmy and the way that she kind of, there's a scene where she's sitting on her front stoop and she stands up and runs off frame, which is like a nothing scene. But the way that she stands up has this kind of kid logic to it that puts her body in this kind of awkward contortion that you, a a normal person would never do in a million years, but it's so genuinely what a child would do. And it's so beautiful to see on, on the screen. And, and along the same lines in the in the bumper car scene, which I love, they keep showing her making like angry eyes at Jamie Lee Curtis. And it's in a way kind of bad, like she's kind of like way overdoing it. But she's also way overdoing it genuinely in the way a child would way overdo it. It's, it's pretty great. She's she's great in this movie. Well, she has to sell that look because otherwise the scene doesn't make any sense because you can't terrorize someone with bumper cars. <laughs> right. So without that look, it doesn't really work. If she were just laughing, it would be fine. And there would be no problem. Um, I, my favorite part is, uh, yeah, Anna Klumsky. I think she is um, 
sort of like a revelation in this movie, like one of the great kids' performances. And every time her she opens her eyes, you're just like struck by those those eyes. Uh, but I really like the bingo scene where the oh, two old men yes. start yelling at each other, and uh, he says he's going to kick his lily ass. Your wrinkled <laughs> ass. Yelling at each other for no oh, reason. Oh, wrinkled ass. I'm going to yeah, kick your wrinkled in- ass is an incredible line. And, and then the, they and start the, fighting for real. Which is but his, his, his wife tries to like calm him down. She's like, take it easy, Doug. Don't tell me to take it easy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really loved uh, that moment in the movie. And then also that like she it's like you said before, it's like they do the kids do bad things, but they don't have the movie doesn't feel the need to give them like um, weight, like o- overly weighted consequences all the time. Like they call bingo and it's not a big deal. Right. They're just kind of, she's just learning about her dad and learning about this relationship. Um, So, yeah, I I really like that scene. Um, The next question we ask is, uh, you know, we uh, started this podcast last year in the middle of the pandemic and we called it 30 years later. And so that means that every movie we're going to watch takes place in the 90s for the first 10 years of the podcast. Assuming it goes beyond that, or yes. we make some adjustments. And congratulations um, on the second decade of the podcast in advance. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, it means a lot to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, finally, we can talk about American Pie 3. Um, <laughs> so the uh, the next question is, what was the most 90s thing uh, about this movie? Oh, well, I mean, I think this is a no-brainer. Macaulay Culkin is the most 90s thing about this movie. The fact that this movie stars Macaulay Culkin in what is not a starring role, but features him prominently and then causes an outrage by killing him is definitely <laughs> the most nineties thing about this movie. Amazing. Right. Amazing stuff. To, to have oh, Macaulay can I just... Cul- Sorry. Go ahead, Chris. Oh no, just to have Macaulay Culkin at this time and then not even have him be the star of the movie. What a flex. It's, you know? it's very first episode of lost very much like we're going to have a guest star and murder them. And that's the start of our TV show. <laughs> yeah, it's the first 10 minutes of scream. Right? Yeah. I, I forgot to bring this up before, but we get a we get a scene at one point in the movie where Jamie Lee Curtis is not very good at doing makeup on the dead bodies. Yes, right. She has to be told. Well, I have another. I don't want to get too tangential here, but even within that scene, I have one of my nitpicks about the character, which is that she gets chastised for doing a bad job on a body that she's doing makeup on, which she does do a bad job, and then immediately after that, decides to tell Dan Aykroyd how to raise his child. Like, doesn't even <laughs> wait for like the moment of fucking up her job to be over before she starts telling this guy how to raise his kid. But after the only other time we see her job as a makeup artist on bodies is when we see Macaulay Culkin's body in the casket and he still has all of the bruises from the, <laughs> yes! from the beast things on his yeah. face. Is that not something a mortician makeup artist could cover up? I was thinking about this because before they showed it, and again, I had not seen the movie before, but I was thinking to myself, okay, if this kid died of an allergic reaction to bee stings, I don't know if he would even, his swelling would go down by this point. Like, I think this would be a closed casket funeral. I think he would be grotesquely swollen and there would be nothing you could do about it. So I was happy they at least had a couple of little stings as a kind of nod to that. 
So maybe it was a compromise. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> She's like, look, right. I can't make him look perfect, but I will make him look like a normal human boy with bruises. <laughs> with, a, with a few mosquito bites. Yeah. I just need to drain some of his face, and then we can get down to this. <laughs> he's not going to look like one of the kids after Wonka, but he's not going to look good. That's the best I can do. You understand? Ooh, he's going to look like he had the mumps really bad. Do you think there was a scene where, like... <laughs> He Dan Aykroyd went over to the other guy that works there, and they and was like, "How's the draining going? It's gonna take a while." He's pretty banged up. They like, open oh. the because he comes in in a closed like body bag. They open the body bag, and they all just start vomiting everywhere because it's so <laughs> disgusting to look at him. You realize that like when you're writing a screenplay, like you know, you tend to sort of write all of these scenes that don't have any don't go into the movie at all because you're just trying to like track the timeline. So it's possible that the screenwriter of this movie wrote like this sort of autopsy and the, the sort of draining of fluids and everything that Dan Aykroyd would have done with a child's body. And maybe that could have been a very beautiful scene because he would have had to process it and realize it this kid. He, he had a yeah, exactly. with this child also, you know, it's the coroner being like, well, the child received three bee stings only on his face, but his glasses were stung 4,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> and as we all know, that is immediately fatal. <laughs> uh, I'm going with Macaulay Culkin as well for what's the most 90s thing about this movie because there isn't anything about the styles or anything that they're doing that uh, really... Um, yeah, there's there's really nothing else. I, I, I could say something about the budget and how, how good the movie looks for the type of movie that it is. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know if that really fits. I think it's Macaulay Culkin. I'm with I'm with Chris on this. Yeah. So for me, it's like um, you brought this up right at the beginning, Ricky, and I, I totally thought it was a good insight. And I selfishly didn't really engage because I was saving it for, for this part of the show. So now we're to it. Um, but it is a certain kind of like mawkish, sentimental, uh, but also like shockingly sad children's movie but that also works that i think was a big genre in in the 90s and i and i don't think exists anymore like you're saying you keep you look for contemporary examples they they don't exist but i i'm a partial list a partial list for me is like okay mermaids i mentioned king of the hill fly away home radio flyer even like iron giant in its own way is one of these movies well there's a sense of like the studio and the director and the writer being like let's make a good movie versus like, let's throw chum to whatever like demographic we think will pick this one up somewhere. And also like the genre of this kind of movie was there was a climactic thing that happened that was extremely sad. And it's like everything else in its own way is just kind of leading up to that. And you're taking everything in, in the early part of the movie, knowing that something like catastrophically sorrowful is going to happen. You know? Well, you, you knew that going into it because of what you'd been told, but I don't think audiences going to see it for the first time knew that that was going to be, that's what it, that's what was going to happen. So I will give it credit maybe as like being one of the originators of this genre, but I think maybe moving on from this for the rest of the decade, it became a little bit more calcified. Oh, I see what you're saying. I'm sorry, but like the terms of endearment beaches kind of, kind of, kind of structure. Yeah, you're right. You're right. The other thing that I think is interesting and, and doesn't really happen as much anymore. Well, two things are one, like the use of music as like, um, you know, to, to kind of move you through bookends. Like they, they really hit hard on the way soundtrack works, right? It's not like underscoring. It's like, and now moving to a new scene, but no, 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 that kind of yes. stuff. And, and also the fact that the name of the movie is my girl and it's not, you know, 
my girl plays at the end. That's it. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really have any bearing on the movie, you know. But I guess, it works. No, it totally works. But that that feels like not something you would see these days. But and this was right. apparently like it, the the third title of the movie, which is of course like not unusual. But that was not the original title. But the the first title was Born Jaundiced. <laughs> <laughs> like what the fuck is that? I love. I have to say, I love that title. I know all of the like all of the trivia was like Born Jaundiced. Of course, could it be used? And I was like, I love that title. Should it be called Born Jaundiced? <laughs> born Jaundiced. But which of them was Born Jaundiced? And Anna Chomsky, I guess. <laughs> yeah, she says she was Born Jaundiced yeah. at the beginning. That's like what she says i believe in her opening uh monologue to camera oh, okay. i forgot i forgot i mean it certainly wouldn't yeah. have made nearly as much money but i love that <laughs> john just i don't know man um, it's the fucking 90s who knows bro i mean it might have worked just as fine <laughs> you know so the last question that we ask is uh you know it's been 30 years since this movie came out uh we've grown out of a lot of uh a lot of things in, in 30 years what do you think uh what do you think we've grown out of that this movie does or has in it or says hmm yeah this is a tough one i think that uh there's a lot that we still like this this movie held up better than i expected uh so i think the thing that we have maybe grown out of is the idea that i i well, I, I think a big I think the biggest thing that we've grown out of is the idea that like trauma can be fixed by like having a a positive attitude, right? Like the whole understanding of mental illness of this movie, which is kind of the whole heart of the movie, is like all that she needs to do is like talk about death and she's gonna be happy. Like she's happy the day after her best friend dies, which we I don't think we have anymore. We have found this to be very common in movies of this period, right, Ricky? Like, there's, like, an awareness of mental health issues, but also the attitude, like, exactly like you said, like, they can be fixed by having, like, one conversation. Totally. Well, because I don't think they were considered mental health issues at the time. I think they were considered, like, you're sad. Yeah. You're unhappy. Like, you just talk it out or just do this thing and you'll and you'll feel better. I don't think people had the language nor the insight to know, like, how, what the process was, the time that it takes, and it, it was just kind of, like... Yeah, get a new friend. It's just interesting because <laughs> the movie bike ride is with so, like, it in some ways is so subtle and complex about the ways that, like, kids process stuff, right? Like, we see her having hypochondria as a direct result of being exposed to death. We see her, we understand that she's worried that she's the one who killed her her mom because she her mom died in childbirth like we see all of these things and we see the way that she like processes them but then the end of the movie the resolution is just like her dad comes in and is like oh you didn't do that you're a good little girl are you happy now and she's like yeah it's not so bad being like you dad i i don't know i would say that the end is it 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 is more complex than, 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 than we're giving it. I mean, yes, she has this new friend that she goes on a bike ride with and she seems to have been able to cope a little bit and she has better coping skills, but the movie does still end with her crying and reading a beautiful poem about the death of her friend. So that That's is still true. with okay, her all right. and she's still carrying it with her. And I, it is like by that. the kind of like the best thing we've ever heard her write. And we're kind of seeing, I, I thought I really liked that as a character development thing that, that like, we're supposed to see her growth as a character by her writing a really good poem, which I, I thought was really effective, but I was like, that's not the kind of thing you see very often in a, especially in a children's film. Definitely. Yeah. Can I, can I, I wept, I wept when she read the poem. It's good. It's good. <laughs> like a baby. <laughs> For me, it was definitely when she talks to his mom. That's when I, that's oh when I was God. pouring oh tears. 
I I started I started it was like kind of a roller coaster of tears for me. But when it really started was when she was getting her hair brushed by Jamie Lee Curtis, and she said, "I should have told him he was my best friend." Yeah. And oh then I God. I lost it, calmed a little bit. Then his mom showed up, and I lost it again. And then at the poem, I was done. Yep. These are the little things I'm talking about. But like in that scene where she's brushing her hair, um, there's a way that she pulls the shirt over Anna Chomsky's head, and then Anna Chomsky like pulls her hair out of the neck of the shirt, and I was like this is like what I do every single day with my child all the time. This is like so real. It's such a little touch, but it's made it hit me so much harder because it just felt like this is a real child, you know, like, Oh my God. Yeah. I loved it. Um, um Chris, yeah. Do you want to go? Yeah. For me, um, this is, you kind of brought this up a little bit earlier, Chris, but like, this movie has all of the standard 90s needle drops. And this is one of the things like that maybe wasn't cliched. I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt at this time. But as the decade wore on, these songs became not just in film and TV shows, but commercials, movie trailers, you know, they were just so a part of society. But in, in this movie, we hear um, Good Lovin', of course, My Girl, Hot Fun in the Summertime, and then Marry Me Bill, which is not as much of a big song, but I was like a sincere good loving needle drop in a movie. <laughs> I just think you could never do in a million years right now. Just children having a good time listening to good loving, you know, like, yep, impossible. I think that I've kind of already uh, said everything that we've grown out of that, or that I feel that we've grown out of. And it's all has to do with like how movies are made now and how I just don't think any, you would be able, anybody would be able to make a movie like this. You know, it's like coming off the success of stand by me where it seemed like you could make these, these movies that starred adolescents, but were also smart enough for, for adults to enjoy and not smart enough for adults to enjoy in the way that like toy story is winky or like, it feels like whenever people say, oh, adults can enjoy it too, it means that every now and then a character will turn to the camera and wink at it, and yeah. the adults can kind of laugh at their kids for I, laughing. The minion looks like Don Draper for a second. Like, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. The minions do Mad Men. Yep. Right? Like, that's that's exactly what it is. Whereas this is actually like, uh, like, I don't have a kid, and I'm an adult watching it, and I just enjoyed the movie and thought it was well done and cried and had an emotional experience with it. And I think if you go back and look at reviews, you can see again, we talk about this all the time, Chris, but how, how much uh, critics and audiences didn't know how good they had it Mm, with movies in like 1991. Cause all the reviews are like, this is kind of cliche and overly sentimental. And like, you know, like it's just a kid's movie, whatever. And it's like, man, I I just wish some of you guys would come up to right now and watch watching because you would be devastated. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I have one thing that doesn't hasn't fit in anywhere that I just want to make sure that we talk about because it also just blew my mind. So I watched this movie, obviously understanding that I was going to talk about it with you two, uh, you know, devoted and uh, attentive to detail cinema, cinema experts. Okay. (laughs) So I watched the credits and I was paying attention to the credits and there was something that shocked me to my core which is one of the very small parts in this movie is played by edgar Allan poe the (laughs) fourth what edgar Allan poe the fourth is in this movie and apparently is a direct descendant of edgar Allan poe 
this is fucking wild. Whoa. I'm looking up. He was in Cape Fear too, apparently. Yeah. Oh my he was God. a prisoner in Cape Fear. He was the carnival barker in My Girl. Yeah. He was crazy nerd in Bikini Beach Race. Now, I actually noticed him in this movie because in the scene where he is the carnival barker, I now I didn't say, hey, that is famous background actor Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe the Fourth, but I did watch it and think that guy is wearing almost the exact same outfit as Dan Aykroyd in this scene. Those two are dressed very similarly, <laughs> Carnival Barker and Dan Aykroyd on a date. And then later on, I discovered that that man is the Raven Junior Junior Junior. It's very strange. It's very. I guess he would have been one of the adults, right? He's an adult. Yes. That's fucking very strange to me, dude. Just very quickly going to look up what he looks like. I can't. It's actually, if you look him up, it's very hard to find a picture of him. I'm trying to do yes. it now. There's a lot of mysteries about this movie. Certainly, like, what happens to the screenwriter? Why is this the end of the director's career? Uh, well, I guess that one is an easier one because we know that they passed away. But then also, how is, how is this carnival barker? The mystery What's is that happening? he died, Chris. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And like any good Edgar Allan Poe mystery, some of these other mysteries are involve death. <laughs> yeah, a lot of these pictures are of, like, famous people that were in movies with him, I guess. Like, there's a picture of Monkey Bone. Mm-hmm. There's a picture of uh, Jim Belushi. I don't know. Yeah, that's that, that's all that I saw. I don't see any pictures of him. I just see like pictures of the leads of the movies that he was an extra in. Yes, absolutely. That's very strange. Yeah. There was. I one... want to say one more thing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. Oh no, I. This is so dumb. So it'll be very quick. But you brought it up a little bit ago, Chris. This is just like things that don't fit anywhere else. Um, I think I was thinking like you don't see fairs that much anymore. Mm, totally. <laughs> I don't know that a fair is a like a stock scene in a movie anymore, even a kid's movie. You know? Yeah, it used to be. Every, it used to be so many movies. Oh, we're going to go have a fun scene. We'll go to the state fair. Where else would the kids have fun? The yep. fair. That's oh. like the number one place a kid goes. Oh, a descendant yeah. of one of our country's most famous horror writers will take them <laughs> on a ride at a fair. Of course. I mean, of course. Where else would you encounter someone like that? <laughs> I hate to be this guy, but it's because it costs money. <laughs> <You got it. laughs> like, like you have to get extras, you have to get all those props. And apparently, like- this they filmed this movie in in Florida. They they invited this real carnival to come to where they were filming, and that's where they filmed. Incredible, incredible. Yeah, I was I was just gonna say one more thing about Griffin Dunn. Um, and if we're basically done with the podcast, so maybe it doesn't even really fit in anymore. But like every time Veda like enters his perspective or like, you know, when she shows up at the house or shows up in the class or when she shows up at the house in the end, he always says hi to her by going, Veda. It's very <laughs> so like weird. dramatic, strange way of saying hi to a child. Again, like he no, is like, having an affair with her. Yes. Yeah. Like, and every time she shows up, it's like she's interrupting something that she shouldn't or that she's like, which she kind of is at times with the classroom. But it's always this like very emotional and dramatic, like she shouldn't be there kind of thing. I it's agree. Very, with- it's a very weird performance. It's very, I mean, and it's funny because there is like one of the most famous Simpsons episodes of all time is about this exact same plot line. The one with, is it like Dustin Hoffman is doing the voice of the teacher Elisa is in love with. Um, But it comes off much less weird in that, I think, in this movie. Uh, We also haven't talked about the, a couple members of the actual creative writing class that Veda goes to. Oh yeah. Which is, there's the, there's the one hippie guy who got the biggest laugh uh, out of me from the whole movie, which is when at the end of the class, Griffin Dunn is like, read some quote. And then he's like, be thunder. 
be thunder and the guy raises his hand and goes uh what exactly do you mean by that <laughs> yes i love that it's a very greg from succession line absolutely delivered yes. very greg from succession style i love that character because he was also when veda like comes back to the class and everyone's excited to see her and they all do a veda <laughs> when she walks into the room uh he was just like this I loved his whoever that actor is. He's such a warm presence, and he totally. played that part very well. Like he's a dumb stoner, but he's also clearly like a really good guy. He's the yeah. same guy who earlier is like, "No, Veda, read my vibes, my vibes, Veda." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> my hangnails like beside the point. <laughs> yeah, that that was all fucking amazing. It was all really good stuff. I wish I could find find out who that actor is, but I don't think he's going to have. Also in the, in the creative writing class, there's like a hot woman that's into wellness. And I'm like, I I think I follow that person on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly possible. Do you, uh, Ricky, you might follow her too. Is one of Kelly's friends from grad school. Do you know who I'm talking about? (laughs) No. This woman Paige, um, you ever follow her? Um, She's one of Kelly's friends. Anyway, she is like literally this person. Like, uh, like being a hot girl is is very closely related to your views about wellness, and they're reinforcing each other somehow. Oh man, I got some sad news, guys. I think that this this guy that played the 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 hippie in the creative writing class that I was talking about, uh, I think his name is Tom Villard, and I think he passed away. Oh, oh no, lots of death associated with this movie. I mean, Ricky, it is was it cursed. It was a long time. Well, ago. It, it was made 30 years ago. People do years ago. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think my theory about the curse is better. <laughs> Except he died uh, like uh, a couple years after it was made. Mm. So did the director, huh? You know. Okay, uh, yeah. Actually, I have a question about old. death related to this. Uh, you look, you didn't kill your mother, Chris. Okay? Oh, thank God. Oh, thank you. Well, that solves all of my problems. Thank you. Um, my My question is, now they knocked down that beehive a few days before Thomas J <laughs> yes. goes back, right? How long do bees just keep staying in their broken down hive? I thought they I, would leave. I did think about this too, and I did think that was pretty fucked up. And that makes it pretty like reasonable that Thomas J gives a very, very gentle kick to this beehive because it's like, how could it possibly have bees in it? Yeah, it still? just seems to me like, come on, the bees have got to be gone. They don't stick in when it's on the ground. <laughs> These bees put a lot of work into that hive, actually, and they're they're trying to rebuild, you know? Certainly anyone oh. who has ever tried to get rid of a wasp or beehive, having seen this movie, thinks about this movie. I know that I had to do that <laughs> two years ago on my ha- side of my house, and I, when I sprayed the wasp spray, I was wearing, like, a full protective... I was wearing a hoodie with it all the way up, goggles, like, gloves, <laughs> everything, and I was thinking very clearly in my head of Thomas J., Guys, I'm still on on Tom Dillard, and uh, uh, he was one of the few actors in Hollywood in the early 90s who was open about his homosexuality and about the challenge of living with HIV and AIDS. Oh, and he died of uh, he died with of AIDS complications in 1994. That's wow. very interesting. Oh, so this was close to the end of his career and his life. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I wonder if oh, he was man. HIV positive when making this movie. It's quite possible. I mean, he definitely has that the like um that kindness of spirit that you can see would you would have if you were uh being open about 
your struggles for the sake of the community too. I don't know what I, that really means. I, just I agree with like, you. And it's thing. a very sweet, it's a very sweet thing to say, Chris, but I also did think you were going to say, he does seem like he's dying of AIDS. <laughs> yes, which I, I was gonna... That's not what I meant, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's the hang. The hangnail is always the dead giveaway. Yeah. Dead giveaway. Uh, it's unfortunate. Well, guys, uh, I think that just about does it. I think, I think so we, too. I think we've talked, talked my girl to death. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. Chris, thank you so much for taking time to uh, talk with us today. Where should people find you uh, out in the world or on the internet? Um, you can find everything about me online at chrisduffycomedy.com. Uh, awesome. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. Pleasure.